0: Case 5 Camp of the Dog Part 1 of John Silence This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eleanor Sakamoto. John Silence by Algernon Blackwood. Case 5 Camp of the Dog Part 1 islands of all shapes and sizes troop northward from stockholm by the hundred and the little steamer that threads their intricate mazes in summer leaves the traveller in a somewhat bewildered state as regards the points of the compass when it reaches the end of its journey at waxholm but it is only after waxholm that the true islands begin so to speak to run wild and start up the coast on their tangled course of a hundred miles of deserted loveliness and it was in the very heart of this delightful confusion that we pitched our tents for a summer holiday a veritable wilderness of islands lay about us from the mere round button of a rock that bore a single fir to the mountainous stretch of a square mile densely wooded and bounded by precipitous cliffs so close together often that a strip of water ran between no wider than a country lane or again so far that an expanse stretched like the open sea for miles Although the larger islands boasted farms and fishing stations, the majority were uninhabited. Carpeted with moss and heather, their coastline showed a series of ravines and clefts and little sandy bays, with a growth of splendid pine woods that came down to the water's edge and led the eye through unknown depths of shadow and mystery into the very heart of primitive forest. The particular islands to which we had camping rights by virtue of paying a nominal sum to a Stockholm merchant lay together in a picturesque group far beyond the reach of the steamer, one being a mere reef with a fringe of fairy-like birches, and two others, cliff-bound monsters rising with wooded heads out of the sea. The fourth, which we selected because it enclosed a little lagoon suitable for anchorage, bathing, night-lines, and what not, shall have what description is necessary as the story proceeds. But so far as paying rent was concerned, we might equally well have pitched our tents in any one of a hundred others that clustered about us as thickly as a swarm of bees it was in the blaze of an evening in july the air clear as crystal the sea a cobalt blue when we left the steamer on the borders of civilization and sailed away with maps compasses and provisions for the little group of dots in the skaggard that were to be our home for the next two months the dinghy and my canadian canoe trailed behind us with tents and dunnage carefully piled aboard and when the point of cliff intervened to hide the steamer in the waxom hotel we realized for the first time that the horror of trains and houses was far behind us the fever of men in cities the weariness of streets and confined spaces the wilderness opened up on all sides into endless blue reaches and the map and compasses were so frequently called into requisition that we went astray more often than not and progress was enchantingly slow. It took us, for instance, two whole days to find our crescent-shaped home, and the camps we made on the way were so fascinating that we left them with difficulty and regret. For each island seemed more desirable than the one before it, and over all lay the spell of haunting peace, remoteness from the turmoil of the world, and the freedom of open and desolate spaces. And so many of these spots of world beauty have I sought out and dwelt in that in my mind remains only a composite memory of their faces, a true map of heaven, as it were, from which this particular one stands forth with unusual sharpness because of the strange things that happen there, and also, I think, because anything in which John Silence played a part has a habit of fixing itself in the mind with a living and lasting quality of vividness. For the moment, however, Dr. Silence was not of the party. Some private case in the interior of Hungary claimed his attention, and it was not till later, the 15th of August to be exact, that I had arranged to meet him in Berlin, and then return to London together for our harvest of winter work. All the members of our party, however, were known to him more or less well, and on this third day as we sailed through the narrow opening into the lagoon, and saw the circular ridge of trees in a gold and crimson sunset before us, his last words to me when we parted in london for some unaccountable reason came back very sharply to my memory and recalled the curious impression of prophecy with which i had first heard them enjoy your holiday and store up all the force you can he had said as the train slipped out of victoria and we will meet in berlin on the fifteenth unless you should send for me sooner and now suddenly the words returned to me so clearly that it seemed i almost heard his voice in my ear unless you should send for me sooner and returned moreover with a significance i was wholly at a loss to understand that touched somewhere in the depths of my mind a vague sense of apprehension that they had all along been intended in the nature of a prophecy in the lagoon then the wind failed us this july evening as was only natural behind the shelter of the belt of woods and we took to the oars all breathless with the beauty of this first sight of our island home yet all talking in somewhat hushed voices of the best place to land the depth of water the safest place to anchor to put up the tents in the most sheltered spot for the campfires, and a dozen things of importance that crop up when a home in the wilderness has actually to be made and during this busy sunset hour of unloading before the dark the souls of my companions adopted the trick of presenting themselves very vividly anew before my mind and introducing themselves afresh in reality i suppose our party was in no sense singular in the conventional life at home they certainly seemed ordinary enough but suddenly as we passed through these gates of the wilderness i saw them more sharply than before with characters stripped of the atmosphere of men in cities a complete change of setting often furnishes a startlingly new view of people hitherto held for well known they present another facet of their personalities i seemed to see my own party almost as new people people i had not known properly hitherto people who would drop all disguises and henceforth reveal themselves as they really were and each one seemed to say now you will see me as i am you will see me here in this primitive life of the wilderness without clothes all my masks and veils i have left behind in the abodes of men so look out for surprises The Reverend Timothy Maloney helped me to put up the tents, long practice making the process easy. And while he drove in pegs and tightened ropes, his coat off, his flannel collar flying open without a tie, it was impossible to avoid the conclusion that he was cut out for the life of a pioneer rather than the church. He was fifty years of age, muscular, blue eyed, and hardy, and he took his share of the work and more without shirking. The way he handled the axe in cutting down saplings for the tent poles was a delight to see and his eye in judging the level was unfailing bullied as a young man into a lucrative family living he had in turn bullied his mind into some semblance of orthodox beliefs doing the honours of the little country church with an energy that made one think of a coal-heaver tending china and it was only in the past few years that he had resigned the living and taken instead to cramming young men for their examinations this suited him better it enabled him too to indulge his passion for spells of wild life and to spend the summer months of most years under canvas in one part of the world or another where he could take his young men with him and combine reading with open air his wife usually accompanied him and there was no doubt she enjoyed the trips for she possessed though in less degree the same joy of the wilderness that was his own distinguishing characteristic the only difference was that while he regarded it as the real life, she regarded it as an interlude. While he camped out with his heart and mind, she played at camping out with her clothes and body. Nonetheless, she made a splendid companion, and to watch her busy cooking dinner over the fire we had built among the stones was to understand that her heart was in the business for the moment, and that she was happy even with the detail. Mrs. Maloney at home knitting in the sun and believing that the world was made in six days was one woman but mrs maloney standing with bare arms over the smoke of a wood fire under the pine trees was another and peter sangri the canadian pupil with his pale skin and his loose though not ungainly figure stood beside her in very unfavourable contrast as he scraped potatoes and sliced bacon with slender white fingers that seemed better suited to hold a pen than a knife She ordered him about like a slave, and he obeyed, too, with willing pleasure, for in spite of his general appearance of debility he was as happy to be in camp as any of them. But more than any other member of the party, Joan Maloney, the daughter, was the one who seemed a natural and genuine part of the landscape, who belonged to it all just in the same way that the trees and the moss and the gray rocks running out into the water belonged to it, for she was obviously in her right and natural setting a creature of the wilds a gypsy in her own home to any one with a discerning eye this would have been more or less apparent but to me who had known her during all the twenty-two years of her life and was familiar with the ins and outs of her primitive utterly unmodern type it was strikingly clear to see her there made it impossible to imagine her again in civilization i lost all recollection of how she looked in a town the memory somehow evaporated this slim creature before me flitting to and fro with the grace of the woodland life swift supple adroit on her knees blowing the fire or stirring the frying-pan through a veil of smoke suddenly seemed the only way i had ever really seen her here she was at home in london she became someone concealed by clothes an artificial doll overdressed and moving by clockwork only a portion of her alive here she was alive all over I forget altogether how she was dressed, just as I forget how any particular tree was dressed, or how the markings ran on any one of the boulders that lay about the camp. She looked just as wild and natural and untamed as everything else that went to make up the scene, and more than that I cannot say. Pretty she was decidedly not. She was thin, skinny, dark-haired, and possessed of great physical strength in the form of endurance. She had to, something of the force and vigorous purpose of a man, tempestuous sometimes, and wild to passionate, frightening her mother, and puzzling her easy-going father with her storms of waywardness, while at the same time she stirred his admiration by her violence, a pagan of the pagans she was besides, and with some haunting suggestion of old-world pagan beauty about her dark face and eyes, altogether an odd and difficult character but with a generosity and high courage that made her very lovable. In town life she always seemed to me to feel cramped, bored, a devil in a cage, in her eyes a hunted expression as though any moment she dreaded to be caught. But up in these spacious solitudes all this disappeared. Away from the limitations that plagued and stung her, she would show at her best. And as I watched her moving about the camp I repeatedly found myself thinking of a wild creature, that had just obtained its freedom and was trying its muscles peter sangree of course at once went down before her but she was so obviously beyond his reach and besides so well able to take care of herself that i think her parents gave the matter but little thought and he himself worshipped at a respectful distance keeping admirable control of his passion in all respects save one for at his age the eyes are difficult to master and the yearning Almost the devouring expression often visible in them was probably there unknown even to himself. He better than anyone else understood that he had fallen in love with something most hard of attainment, something that drew him to the very edge of life and almost beyond it. It, no doubt, was a secret and terrible joy to him, this passionate worship from afar. Only I think he suffered more than anyone guessed and that his want of vitality was due in large measure to the constant stream of unsatisfied yearning that poured for ever from his soul and body. Moreover, it seemed to me, who now saw them for the first time together, that there was an unnameable something, an elusive quality of some kind, that marked them as belonging to the same world, and that although the girl ignored him, she was secretly, and perhaps unknown to herself, drawn by some attribute very deep in her own nature to some quality equally deep in his this then was the party when we first settled down into our two months camp on the island in the baltic sea other figures flitted from time to time across the scene and sometimes one reading man sometimes another came to join us and spend his four hours a day in the clergyman's tent but they came for short periods only and they went without leaving much trace in my memory And certainly they played no important part in what subsequently happened. The weather favored us that night, so that by sunset the tents were up, the boats unloaded, a store of wood collected and chopped into lengths, and the candle lanterns hung round ready for lighting on the trees. Sangree, too, had picked deep mattresses of balsam boughs for the women's beds and had cleared little paths of brushwood from their tents to the central fireplace. All was prepared for bad weather. It was a cozy supper and a well-cooked one that we sat down to and ate under the stars, and, according to the clergyman, the only meal fit to eat we had seen since we left London a week before. The deep stillness, after that roar of steamers, trains, and tourists, held something that thrilled, for as we lay round the fire there was no sound but the faint sighing of the pines, and the soft lapping of the waves along the shore, and against the sides of the boat in the lagoon. The ghostly outline of her white sails was just visible through the trees, idly rocking to and fro in her calm anchorage, her sheets flapping gently against the mast. Beyond lay the dim blue shapes of other islands floating in the night, and from all the great spaces about us came the murmur of the sea and the soft breathing of great woods, the odors of the wilderness, smells of wind and earth, of trees and water, clean, vigorous and mighty were the true odors of a virgin world unspoilt by men more penetrating and more subtly intoxicating than any other perfume in the whole world oh and dangerously strong too no doubt for some natures ah breathed out the clergyman after supper with an indescribable gesture of satisfaction and relief here there is freedom and room for body and mind to turn in here one can work and rest and play here one can be alive and absorb something of the earth forces that never get within touching distance in the cities by george i shall make a permanent camp here and come when it is time to die the good man was merely giving vent to his delight at being under canvas he said the same thing every year and he said it often but it more or less expressed the superficial feelings of us all and when a little later he turned to compliment his wife on the fried potatoes and discovered that she was snoring with her back against a tree he grunted with content at the sight and put a ground-sheet over her feet as if it were the most natural thing in the world for her to fall asleep after dinner and then moved back to his own corner smoking his pipe with great satisfaction and i smoking mine too lay and fought against the most delicious sleep imaginable while my eyes wandered from the fire to the stars peeping through the branches and then back again to the group about me The Reverend Timothy soon let his pipe go out, and succumbed as his wife had done, for he had worked hard and eaten well. Sangree, also smoking, leaned against a tree with his gaze fixed on the girl, a depth of yearning in his face that he could not hide, and that really distressed me for him. And Joan herself, with wide staring eyes, alert, full of the new forces of the place, evidently keyed up by the magic of finding herself among all the things her soul recognized as home, sat rigid by the fire, her thoughts roaming through the spaces, the blood stirring about her heart. She was as unconscious of the Canadian's gaze as she was that her parents both slept. She looked to me more like a tree, or something that had grown out of the island, than a living girl of the century. And when I spoke across to her in a whisper, and suggested a tour of investigation. She started and looked up at me as though she had heard a voice in her dreams. Sangri leapt up and joined us, and without waking the others, we three went over the ridge of the island and made our way down to the shore behind. The water lay like a lake before us, still colored by the sunset. The air was keen and scented, wafting the smell of the wooded islands that hung about us in the darkening air. Very small waves tumbled softly on the sand. The sea was sown with stars and everywhere breathed and pulsed the beauty of the northern summer night i confess i speedily lost consciousness of the human presences beside me and i have little doubt joan did too only sangree felt otherwise i suppose for presently we heard him sighing and i can well imagine that he absorbed the whole wonder and passion of the scene into his aching heart to swell the pain there that was more searching even than the pain at the sight of such matchless and incomprehensible beauty the splash of a fish jumping broke the spell i wish we had the canoe now remarked joan we could paddle out to the other islands of course i said wait here and i'll go across for it and was turning to feel my way back through the darkness when she stopped me in a voice that meant what it said no mr sangree will get it we will wait here in Kui to guide him the canadian was off in a moment for she had only to hint of her wishes, and he obeyed. Keep out from shore in case of rocks, I cried out as he went, and turn to the right out of the lagoon. That's the shortest way round by the map. My voice travelled across the still waters, and woke echoes in the distant islands that came back to us like people calling out of space. It was only thirty or forty yards over the ridge, and down the other side to the lagoon where the boats lay, but it was a good mile to coast round the shore in the dark to where we stood and waited. We heard him stumbling away among the boulders, and then the sound suddenly ceased as he topped the ridge, and went down past the fire on the other side. "'I didn't want to be left alone with him,' the girl said presently in a low voice. "'I'm always afraid he's going to say or do something.' She hesitated a moment, looking quickly over her shoulder toward the ridge where he had just disappeared. "'Something that might lead to unpleasantness.' She stopped abruptly. "'You, frightened Joan?' I exclaimed with genuine surprise. "'This is a new light on your wicked character. I thought the human being who could frighten you did not exist.' Then I suddenly realized she was talking seriously, looking to me for help of some kind, and at once I dropped the teasing attitude. "'He's very far gone, I think, Joan,' I added gravely. "'You must be kind to him, whatever else you may feel. He's exceedingly fond of you.' "'I know.' "'But I can't help it,' she whispered, lest her voice should carry in the stillness. "'There's something about him that—that makes me feel creepy and half afraid. "'But, poor man, it's not his fault if he is delicate and sometimes looks like death.' I laughed gently by way of defending what I felt to be a very innocent member of my sex. "'Oh, but it's not that I mean,' she answered quickly. "'It's something I feel about him—something in his soul.' Something he hardly knows himself, but that may come out if we are much together. It draws me, I feel, tremendously. It stirs what is wild in me, deep down, oh, very deep down. Yet at the same time makes me feel afraid. I suppose his thoughts are always playing about you, I said, but he's nice-minded and-Yes, yes, she interrupted impatiently. I can trust myself absolutely with him. He's gentle and singularly pure-minded. But there's something else that—' She stopped again sharply to listen. Then she came up close beside me in the darkness, whispering. "'You know, Mr. Hubbard, sometimes my intuitions warn me a little too strongly to be ignored. Oh, yes, you needn't tell me again that it's difficult to distinguish between fancy and intuition. I know all that. But I also know that there is something deep down in that man's soul that calls to something deep down in mine.' and at present it frightens me because i cannot make out what it is and i know-i know he'll do something some day that-that will shake my life to the very bottom she laughed a little at the strangeness of her own description i turned to look at her more closely but the darkness was too great to show her face there was an intensity almost of suppressed passion in her voice that took me completely by surprise Nonsense, Joan, I said a little severely. You know him well. He's been with your father for months now. But that was in London, and up here it's different. I mean, I feel that it may be different. Life in a place like this blows away the restraints of the artificial life at home. I know, oh, I know what I'm saying. I feel all untied in a place like this. The rigidity of one's nature begins to melt and flow. Surely you must understand what I mean of course i understand i replied yet not wishing to encourage her in her present line of thought and it's a grand experience for a short time but you are overtired to-night joan like the rest of us a few days in this air will set you above all fears of the kind you mention then after a moment's silence i added feeling i should estrange her confidence altogether if i blundered any more and treated her like a child i think perhaps the true explanation is that you pity him for loving you and at the same time you feel the repulsion of the healthy vigorous animal for what is weak and timid if he came up boldly and took you by the throat and shouted that he would force you to love him well then you would feel no fear at all you would know exactly how to deal with him isn't it perhaps something of that kind the girl made no reply and when i took her hand i felt that it trembled a little and was cold. It's not his love that I'm afraid of, she said hurriedly, for at this moment we heard the dip of a paddle in the water. It's something in his very soul that terrifies me in a way I have never been terrified before, yet fascinates me. In town I was hardly conscious of his presence, but the moment we got away from civilization it began to come. He seems so, so real up here. I dread being alone with him. It makes me feel that something must burst and tear its way out, that he would do something, or I should do something. I don't know exactly what I mean, probably, but that I should let myself go and scream. Joan! Don't be alarmed, she laughed shortly. I shan't do anything silly, but I wanted to tell you my feelings in case I needed your help. When I have intuitions as strong as this, they are never wrong, only I don't know yet what it means exactly. You must hold out for the month at any rate, I said, in as matter-of-fact voice as I could manage, for her manner had somehow changed my surprise to a subtle sense of alarm. Sangree only stays the month, you know, and anyhow, you are such an odd creature yourself that you should feel generously toward other odd creatures, I ended lamely with a forced laugh. She gave my hand a sudden pressure. I'm glad I've told you at any rate, she said quickly under her breath for the canoe was now gliding up silently like a ghost to our feet. And I'm glad you're here, too, she added, as we moved down towards the water to meet it. I made Sangri change into the bows, and got into the steering seat myself, putting the girl between us, so that I could watch them both by keeping their outlines against the sea and stars. For the intuitions of certain folk, women and children usually, I confess, I have always felt a great respect that has more often than not been justified by experience and now the curious emotion stirred in me by the girl's words remained somewhat vividly in my consciousness i explained it in some measure by the fact that the girl tired out by the fatigue of many days travel had suffered a vigorous reaction of some kind from the strong desolate scenery and further perhaps that she had been treated to my own experience of seeing the members of the party in a new light the canadian being partly a stranger more vividly than the rest of us but at the same time I felt it was quite possible that she had sensed some subtle link between his personality and her own, some quality that she had hitherto ignored, and that the routine of town life had kept buried out of sight. The only thing that seemed difficult to explain was the fear she had spoken of, and this I hoped the wholesome effects of camp life and exercise would sweep away naturally in the course of time. We made the tour of the island without speaking it was all too beautiful for speech the trees crowded down to the shore to hear us pass we saw their fine dark heads bowed low with splendid dignity to watch us forgetting for a moment that the stars were caught in the needled network of their hair against the sky in the west where still lingered the sunset gold we saw the wild toss of the horizon shaggy with forest and cliff gripping the heart like the motive in a symphony and sending the sense of beauty all a-shiver through the mind, all these surrounding islands standing above the water like low clouds, and like them seeming to post along silently into the engulfing night. We heard the musical drip-drip of the paddle, and the little wash of our waves on the shore, and then suddenly we found ourselves at the opening of the lagoon again, having made the complete circuit of our home. The Reverend Timothy had awakened from sleep, and was singing to himself, and the sound of his voice as we glided down the fifty yards of enclosed water was pleasant to hear, and undeniably wholesome. We saw the glow of the fire up among the trees on the ridge, and his shadow moving about as he threw on more wood. "'There you are,' he called aloud, "'good again! Been setting the night-lines, eh? Capital! And your mother's still fast asleep, Joan?' His cheery laugh floated across the water. He had not been in the least disturbed by our absence, for old campers are not easily alarmed. Now remember, he went on, after we had told our little tale of travel by the fire, and Mrs. Maloney had asked for the fourth time exactly where her tent was, and whether the door faced east or south. Everyone takes their turn at cooking breakfast, and one of the men is always out at sunrise to catch it first. Hubbard, I'll toss you which you do in the morning and which I do. He lost the toss. Then I'll catch it, I said, laughing at his discomfiture, for I knew he loathed during the porridge. And mind you don't burn it as you did every blessed time last year on the Volga, I added by way of reminder. Mrs. Maloney's fifth interruption about the door of her tent, and her further pointed observation that it was past nine o'clock, set us lighting lanterns and putting the fire out for safety. But before we separated for the night, the clergyman had a time-honored little ritual of his own to go through. That no one had the heart to deny him. He always did this; it was a relic of his pulpit habits. He glanced briefly from one to the other of us, his face grave and earnest, his hands lifted to the stars, and his eyes all closed and puckered up beneath a momentary frown. Then he offered up a short, almost inaudible prayer, thanking heaven for a safe arrival, begging for good weather, no illness or accidents, plenty of fish, and strong sailing winds. And then, unexpectedly, no one knew why exactly, he ended up with an abrupt request that nothing from the kingdom of darkness should be allowed to affect our peace, and no evil thing come near to disturb us in the night time. And while he uttered these last surprising words, so strangely unlike his usual ending, it chanced that I looked up and let my eyes wander round the group assembled about the dying fire and it certainly seemed to me that Sangri's face underwent a sudden and visible alteration. He was staring at Joan, and as he stared, the change ran over it like a shadow and was gone. I started in spite of myself, for something oddly concentrated, potent, collected, had come into the expression usually so scattered and feeble. But it was all swift as a passing meteor, and when I looked a second time his face was normal. And he was looking among the trees. And Joan, luckily, had not observed him, her head being bowed and her eyes tightly closed while her father prayed. The girl has a vivid imagination indeed, I thought, half laughing, as I lit the lanterns, if her thoughts can put a glamour upon mine this way. And yet, somehow, when we said good night, I took occasion to give her a few vigorous words of encouragement and went to her tent to make sure I could find it quickly in the night in case anything happened. In her quick way, the girl understood and thanked me. And the last thing I heard as I moved off to the men's quarters was Mrs. Maloney crying that there were beetles in her tent and Joan's laughter as she went to help her turn them out. Half an hour later, the island was silent as the grave but for the mournful voices of the wind as it sighed up from the sea. Like white sentries stood the three tents of the men on one side of the ridge, and on the other side, half hidden by some birches whose leaves just shivered as the breeze caught them, the women's tents, patches of ghostly grey, gathered more closely together for mutual shelter and protection. Something like fifty yards of broken ground, grey rock, moss and lichen lay between, and over all lay the curtain of the night, and the great whispering winds from the forests of Scandinavia. And the very last thing— Just before floating away on that mighty wave that carries one so softly off into the deeps of forgetfulness, I again heard the voice of John Silence as the train moved out of Victoria Station. And by some subtle connection that met me on the very threshold of consciousness, there rose in my mind simultaneously the memory of the girl's half given confidence and of her distress. As by some wizardry of approaching dreams, they seemed in that instant to be related. But before I could analyze the why and the wherefore, both sank away out of sight again, and I was off beyond recall. Unless you should send for me sooner. End of Case 5, Part 1